Welcome to the 46th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about establishing social and technical contracts around service selection and service deployment. Last week, we talked a bit about team dynamics and team contracts for social and technical uses. And this week, we're going to look at the products those teams produce. To be able to deploy a service, you have to have a specific definition of what a service is and all of its dependencies. Um, you need to know what the architecture is. You need to be able to define what completeness is for that service and all of the other aspects. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. You've got to have some basic goals, some basic problems that you can write down and, and verify about what you want to solve. If you think about a wiki document, when somebody's looking at this service, the, the opening couple of sentences should be, this service does X, it is here to serve problem Y. And so people can very quickly say, is this thing solving the problem that I have right now? Or is this the, the way we're deploying the thing that I have? Or whatever it is they're looking for, so they can better understand if this service among many is the one that they want. And sometimes that in itself is, is a justification upwards toward management. Why do you want to put a bazillion hours into this solution? How do you state the problem? Um, is that a real problem that you're facing that that everybody is aware of or everyone is suffering from? And a service can be as as large as log aggregation or metrics or file delivery, but it also can be as small as this is the, t the ticketing and tokening system we use to generate credentials for this this other minor piece over here it's it's everywhere in between anything that you can uniquely wrap up as this service does a function it's defined as a thing and it serves this purpose and being able to state that clearly does a world of of difference not only for your documentation but when talking to management and folks upward in the company the next piece of this is no service stands alone no, no service lives in a bubble how does the service that you're looking at delivering how does it integrate with the rest of the fleet or the rest of the, the landscape that you have? What does it talk to? Who's the customer of the service? Where does the data come from in the service? Where does the data go to? So one of my fun new toys is, is work on deploying LDAP for uh, Unix name uh, directory services. And part of the problem there is in how we deploy LDAP to better handle Unix names and user IDs and, and management thereof, but without knowing the clients you might run on your Linux systems that handle NSS and LDAP caching, that really sort of drastically affects how you, you deploy that LDAP solution. So knowing how you plan to interact with the service often, often is, is... It informs directly how you build it. Yes, what Brendan said. <laughs> Another major piece of this is fault tolerance. All, all services are expected to be up most of the time, but what happens when they break? Do they gracefully degrade? Are there failures that are there failure modes that you know about that on this particular day of the month, this external process is going to happen and take down your name service or your other service for twenty minutes while something reloads? If there if they're expected failures. They need to be stated up front and be very clear. So somebody who's coming along and saying, oh, 
this thing is broken. Why is it broken? And they go to the page or they go to the document and they look at it and they go, oh, well, it is broken on the first of every month for this 15 minute window because of stupid reason. And it's very clear. This one is a is a real pet peeve of mine because usually when you're rolling forward a service and there's, you know, check boxes of, of whatever your local internal process is, there's always some question about is it redundant, isn't fault tolerant? And that that is so not a question. It's everybody assumes they can uh, you know, throw a couple servers and not have single points of failures and say we're we're fault tolerant and and go on with the day. But that really doesn't equate to a fault tolerant service at all. It's understanding the failures you want to be able to cope with and explicitly what failures that you don't expect to cope with. Uh, at, at previous jobs, one of our big things was dealing with... Uh, we we plan our fault tolerance assuming that we might lose a data center. However, our two data centers were located physically very close to each other. And you start looking at the scenarios where you could lose a data center for more than you know, several hours or a day and how those scenarios might affect the other data center, which really sort of drastically affects how you plan and build out uh, services and plan for a uh, fault tolerance. Another example, I handle log replication across data centers. We needed enough space to build the, the logging cluster in the right place. And one of the, the faults that I'm aware of that will happen occasionally is latency on the link goes through the roof. And that's not something I can control for. And I can mitigate it a little bit, but I can't really fix it. If, if latency goes from 30 milliseconds to 300 milliseconds, I, I'm going to start falling behind very, very quickly, and I can't fix that. So that's a, that's a stated limitation in the services documentation that says when latency goes crazy, which happens once a year or so, that's not something that I can fix, and we'll, when latency recovers, we'll be back in business. NTP is a fun service when dealing with fault tolerance, and running NTP in a fault-tolerant way is a little different than than normal. And one of the situations folks commonly drill into is, well, what happens if our data center loses power or loses network? Uh, and you have a local time source and a bunch of machines. How does that scenario interact with the rest of the fleet when networking is restored? What is the importance of making sure your machines have reasonable time drift versus actually fixing the network. To summarize all of this, when you're testing and building a service, you should try to understand the different ways in which the service is going to fail because of these external factors. Test for it, understand what the failure looks like, how to validate it, how to document recovering from that kind of failure. So when we were bringing up Kafka in the beginning, we did a lot of hammering on it to see what happens when a broker disappears from the network. What happens when Zookeeper falls apart? What happens when a long list of things? And we wrote it all up because we wanted to make sure that this is a new service that we're bringing online. If those failure modes happened, we had a reasonable way of understanding quickly which failure it was and how to work forward on it. I've written a bunch of NTP documents, and most of those documents are when this failure mode happens, we expect 
this behavior from the clients. When this next failure mood happens, we expect this behavior. And also being able to go back and use, for example, IP tables to simulate those failure modes and actually see what happens. Very, very handy. So how will you perform maintenance on a service or apply patches? Oh, that's easy. Just don't patch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that seems to be the oh, enterprise That was low-hanging fruit, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, you should... You should understand what the upgrade cycle is of, of your product. You shouldn't have a method of being able to patch your product and roll out any sort of emergency changes. Um, and that should be something that you've practiced before and documented. Um, going back to my, my new pet LDAP, I'm using LDAP that comes out of uh, Ubuntu Xenial. I've linked my dependence on that software with upgrades from Xenial and upgrades on the Ubuntu long-term service sort of chain. So I have a reasonable idea of what my upgrade path is going to look like. Now I need to go back and verify that if there is a security vulnerability release, that, that those minor patches, those minor upgrades also have a sane and, and documented way to roll forward cleanly. One of the important pieces of this is, very simply, does your service restart cleanly and properly? Can you take a node out of the cluster or out of the load balancing pool or out of the, the service group for 20 minutes? Um, one of the things that we discovered with Elasticsearch 2.2.1, we were running it in tribe node, is that you had to apply all of the point version patches to every node in every cluster simultaneously. You couldn't have differing versions anywhere. So it effectively barred us from doing any kind of upgrade. And that was a nasty, nasty surprise. And we were very unhappy when we discovered this. And this should have been discovered well before we'd gotten to that point. But that's where we had gotten. That sounds unfun. Yeah. Keeping along with this maintenance topic, um, another piece of the, the puzzle is backups and restoration of service after a fault or a failure of some kind. If you have persistent state somewhere, that probably means that you have persistent state that's worth saving and saving to a backup repository of some kind that you know what it is, that is has a stated retention policy and period, so you can then recover from that backup. One of the things I like to do in this in this, these conditions is use a another uh service that the your company may have. Uh you may store a lot of backend state in MySQL, and hopefully your MySQL service has a backup plan that that runs nightly, that's well tested and well understood. So that makes your burden easier by being able to depend on MySQL backups. But in a lot of cases, that's not the case, and you need to actually plan out what your backups look like, how you're going to test and validate those backups, and that fun stuff. Another interesting Again, piece. Again, LDAP. That's my new friend. Another thing you can look at if you're if you're searching for places and ideas is a lot of folks now have automated tasks that will copy files up to S3 for various reasons for file uploads and crash dumps and firmware testing and all kinds of other varied reasons. If there's already a pre-built secured solution for up uploading to S3 and your backup state is a small thing to back up, that may be an ideal place to say, I'm going to generate a flat file dump. 
I'm going to use the pre-existing synchronization command that gets things up to S3, and then I can test off of S3. And it, it solves... I've seen that set up in several shops, and that's something that's really handy to to take usage of if you're dealing with something small and, and reasonable. Especially if you're leveraging the work of other people. So there's a there's a larger common pool of knowledge around how does this backup service work? Oh, it's using the, the standard S3 service. And so now everybody knows the S3 service and everybody can hit the backups easily themselves. Kind of the, the, the polar opposite of that. I worked several jobs ago in a shop that had a very specific backup client that was very specific for the file servers we were running. And you had to understand how that client worked, where that client lived, all of the things about it. And it was all very domain-specific knowledge. So there was almost no chance that somebody who was not familiar with the system could ever perform a recovery on it. Oh, those were the days, right? Yeah. But um, sort of the motto here is deploying services are hard, but that doesn't mean you can't use the other services you have in your shop and, and work on... On, and stand on the shoulders of others to roll your service out the door. One of the maintenance tasks that you probably want to spend a bit of time on is disaster recovery planning and how you might recover from one of your fault tolerant situations or a ADR scenario, depending on how you have those defined for your company. How will you recreate the service? Um, perhaps this is a validation of a backup. Uh, perhaps you have a production service in one data center um, and you have a non-production version in the other data center and can move backups from production to non-production and verify you have the same backups on both ends. One of the things that I've been doing lately that I find very helpful and others may as well is my DR environment is not a cold standby that has been installed and turned off. It is a and it isn't really even a hot standby. It is an actual live production system that that just simply has far less data in it. So it has the current version of all the software on it. It has indexing feeds into it. It has all the dashboards on it all the time. So if there ever is a DR event, the only thing we're doing is changing how much data flows into it. So this way, we're not we're not relying on some antiquated. Oh, I think the DR environment is is up to date, or somebody forgot to do the thing on it. No, it's it's another production system that just has less data in it. So we treat it like production. When disks fail in it, it's production. We go deal with it like it's production. And then when we have a disaster event or testing a disaster event, we're able to very seamlessly and quickly move into that environment. Yep. Treat DRS production. Deploy to it like you do production. Test it like you do production. I really enjoy being able to set up active-active services throughout Uh, different environments like that. Moving along, visibility is kind of the next major topic. And this lends itself... Ah, metrics. Yes. Metrics and dashboarding. So what what are the KPIs for the service, the key performance indicators? How are they defined? What are you you looking for? What's anomalous behavior look like? Kind of what's what's the the speeds and feeds for your service so you have an idea of the the ballpark for what what you should be expecting for these things? and where all the data goes. And some of these can be difficult to figure out to any detail when you're first planning your service or going through what your initial problem statement and integrations um, are for your service. And although some people might ask for this up front, I totally think that's okay. 
You're going to learn more about your service as you get it deployed and rolled out. You're going to learn more about how you can how, how you can monitor your service, what visibility aspects it has, um, and know which ones are important better with that experience. But on the flip side, you want to, if you're serving requests like an HTTP server, one of the things you probably instantly want to figure out is to be able to track that request per second. One of the other very useful things to look at is the dependent services that you have listed in your integration document that say, okay, this uses Kafka, or this uses Hadoop or HDFS, or this uses some other service. Those services have metrics. Find the metrics of those services that are unique to yours, either to your instance or to what you're doing, and you have your first set of things you can look at and say, while these metrics are good, we know that we're good. They're well understood. There's already dashboards for them. Here is my, my set of that. Yes, and importantly, you don't have to recreate that. Um, I'm looking at setting up Zipkin as, a, as an example of this. And a lot of the Zipkin internals are things we already have metric. So Elasticsearch and Kafka and the container side of things, we already understand all of those pieces of it. So the only new metrics for Zipkin that we're building are things that are specific to the collector and the UI apps themselves, which cuts down on the, the kind of gargantuan seeming task of all of this. It's also important to have a plan for what kind of alerts you might be able to generate and who might you page, who might you wake up in the middle of the night, or who might you stick a low priority task for for someone first thing in the morning. A lot of this will depend on kind of the business or customer impact of the service having an issue. So if it is kind of a nuisance and irritation and things are a little bit slower, that can be a next morning thing. If it's we're taking out the ability for users to log in, that's wake a bunch of people up and get this sorted out right now. People don't need to log in for a service. And then near and dear to my heart, um, almost every modern service produces some kind of log output. They produce an event record that says the things were happening. So what do you do with that event record? Do you ingest them into a distributed aggregation system? Do you write them to a file system somewhere? Do you have a policy for them? Where do you store them? How long do you store them? What is the capacity on the logging system to hold them? All of these questions need to be kind of understood and addressed to say, okay, we're going to generate a thousand requests a second incoming to us, but that's going to produce about 1,500 logs a second because of internal things, and the logging infrastructure is able to handle that capacity with blah, blah. And you talk about that a little bit just to make sure that people are aware of where those logs live, how long the logs are kept, and how many logs you're expecting to have. Step one for me is, have you have you shipped a log rotate configuration for this service? <laughs> if you're not properly managing your logs, your service isn't production ready. And on the flip side, if you're writing services or doing deployment route, deployment work around services and messing with that code that does logs, make sure that your code is aware of possible log rotation out from under it. That can make things a whole lot easier. The, the last thing you want to have happen is for your logs to rotate and your code continues to write to a file handle that doesn't exist anymore. I'm looking at That's you, Java. fun. <laughs> All right, next is the documentation you have for your service. I know I've been in a position where we focus pretty heavily on runbooks, sort of the the recipe you look at when you get a, 
a page in the middle of the night and how you solve that particular issue. And with my work in monitoring, I've been one of the folks with a hammer in my hand that says, make sure you have a run book with each uh, possible alert. Which means that sometimes I don't always focus as much on a broader architecture document. And they're both very important. An architecture document can really help inform a newcomer to why and how the service was built. And it can give auditors a place to start looking at different things when, when that process kicks off. It's really a good thing to do. And if you look at this this podcast in general, this this episode so far, a lot of the things we're talking about are things you can use to seed an architecture document. And about writing those architecture documents, I find it incredibly useful and handy if there's already an agreed upon template for you to fill out. And I've seen several examples on the network, on the internet. I think I have one on my webpage that I'll stick in the show notes. But being able to have previous knowledge of exactly what you need to fill out uh, is really helpful in encouraging folks to actually write that documentation and keeping the quality high as well. And much like the last episode about service teams and their their kind of their contractual agreement with everybody else and how they operate, this is just a suggestion, but it's a pretty strong one. You should really try to find some way for the team to organize and coalesce around a standard of some variety. doesn't matter what the standard is as long as you guys agree on it. Well said. So now that you've designed and planned your service, before you finish up rolling something out to production, there are a few more aspects that you need to have answered and well-documented about your service. And those are about some of the security issues around your service. You need to have a good answer and documentation for how your service authenticates users if it does so, and any authorization controls that are also used to to separate authorization from authentication, which is a, a very important boundary that, that most people don't pay enough attention to. The number of places that have authentication and authorization being synonymous with each other makes me sad because they're not the same thing, and it causes no end of headache later. It's easy to, it's easy to get started by doing it that way, but it's a world of hurt In the beginning, when you're a small shop, it's easy to make that assumption that auth n equals auth c. But I encourage folks to look forward into the future where you have, you know, uh, an access.conf file so you can control which groups can log into a machine, for example. Yeah, find some way to do group-based authentication or at least role-based authentication for the application if you need to do access versus auth because being able to change somebody's permissions within an app without actually removing their user account is invaluable when people change roles or people depart companies and you don't want to disable the user account because they still need to be able to log into some finance system to get some piece of their departure paperwork. But you don't want to have them also able to get into all the old systems because, oh, well, they have an email account. They're, they're still good, right? I uh, haven't seen that before, really. Another sort of... A final security question that you wouldn't have an idea of for your service is how will your service provide confidentiality where needed? Do parts of the data going in and through and out, do parts of those need to be encrypted or protected for some reason? Do we need to have additional safeguards to make sure of the integrity of the data that we haven't somehow corrupted the data through the system? Also, how do we make sure that other systems that are talking 
to that that need to get data out of it are doing so in a secure fashion that doesn't expose or leak data to other places, or that those systems are in fact authorized to consume that data in the first place. That's totally sort of on the more advanced end, but if you get to the place where you're dealing with payments and credit card information, for example, uh, those are things that will become very popular very quickly. Oh, yes. And being able to lay some some groundwork for that in the beginning will save a bunch of time and tears. And designing your security approach before you have finished deploying the service will also make your security team really happy to work with you on something instead of fighting against you once you've rolled something out and they say, but you didn't think about a long list of things. And you go, oh, oh, crap. And then you're back to the drawing board or you have to ship anyway because you've hit some kind of financial milestone or calendar event. And now security is angry at you because you have not done your due diligence to properly secure a system and everybody's working extra time trying to figure out how to patch it in production. Please don't do that. One of the best pieces of advice that I can give anyone working in a a large organization is get to know your security folks and become friends. I've been able to work very closely with the security teams in several in several past jobs. And it's a really sort of an amazing relationship if you can forge it correctly and, and get those folks on your side and, and you on their side. You can push forward things through the through the institution much faster uh, with that extra backing. And you have uh, folks on hand that are always willing to review your code and services to make sure that that what you're deploying lines up with the security goals of the company. And it also lets you sleep a little bit easier at night knowing that you're less likely to have the, the newspaper headline in the morning talking about, oh, your system that was badly secured got breached by somebody because you forgot to do these things. I think that's actually worthy of a, an episode by itself the security integrations done for deployments because it's an important topic and it's a big one. That's a big topic. Stay tuned for that one. I think this, this pretty much wraps up the, the services contract documents or the the services contract ideas with the rest of the organization. Totally. But if you can think through these and document some of this, this will save you a bunch of time. And these are guidelines. These, These are things to start the conversation and ideally have one of these documents for every service that you have already deployed and have one that you write for every service going forward so you have a clear and consistent way for people to discover and understand how and why and where a service is used, deployed, and managed. And you'll have services that are deployed consistently. So each service sort of works with each other better than being on its own island in the middle of the ocean. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts and email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 46th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely.